This is Tony Held with The Medical Director's Always Right. We have made it. This is the last episode for cardiac arrest management. So the next installment of The Medical Director's Always Right will finally have a new topic. So without further ado, here is the conclusion to that discussion. Okay, so what do you see as uh, the role of the physician on scene? What do you think uh, your job is on my scene? Are you running the code? Are you supervising? What are you doing? So I think ideally I am talking with the family. I think that would be the most beneficial. Um, I've uh, Some of the things I've had to do on codes, difficult airway access, especially on a couple of pediatric codes, having to actually step in to do the airway access when other people haven't been able to because I have a little more experience in that is, is reasonable. Um, I've drilled a couple IOs on codes uh, when other providers have missed, um, especially pediatric patients, again, um, just because it's a different anatomy a little bit. Um, but for the most part, I don't think the physician needs to be running the code unless the paramedic has tasks that they need to be doing, um, especially if there's only one paramedic on scene. Uh, paramedic can be um, uh, doing advanced airway placement or uh, getting that access or drawing up the drugs. I think it's probably better for the paramedic to be uh, with the drug bag than myself, just with the familiarity. Um, but I, as a physician, um, I, I don't think I need to step in and run the code most of the time, unless the paramedic is task saturated enough that they're not able to do that. Then I would help relieve that, either doing some of those tasks or running the code so the paramedic can um, um, do what they need to do. Uh, do you see a pre-hospital physician adding any therapies to a cardiac arrest resuscitation? I'd hope so. So some of the therapies that a physician could add, potentially ECMO in a way, way, way distant future uh, here. Uh, Paris is doing some of that, but I don't think that's going to come to the, uh, much of uh, the United States for quite some time. Um, some medications, that would be a good one to, for a physician-level decision on giving uh, thrombolytics, uh, whether it's PE or to see if it uh, would help in a cardiac arrest case. That might be a benefit for a physician. Um, I don't think there's any role for physician surgical intervention like a ED thoracotomy uh, or a field thoracotomy, potentially Reboa. Uh, Reboa is placement of uh, a balloon in the distal aorta and blowing that up, especially maybe in traumatic arrest patients, Reboa in the field may be the thing that gets patients to the ER uh, to get blood products, to get surgical intervention. Um, that may be an intervention on the physician level that would be beneficial uh, for our patients. Um, but overall, not a whole lot. In your standard um, uh, um, cardiac arrest, um, your atherosclerotic arrest, the physician isn't ha adding a whole lot. Other than the liaisoning with uh, family, I think the physician conversation, um, physicians are doing it a little bit more than some of the uh, paramedics, especially the newer ones, so helping with that. And then helping with the team debrief, helping uh, critique what happened, um, and helping with the lessons learned, which we should be doing on every code. Uh, we should be figuring out what went well, what didn't. I think the physician can add good impact to that discussion. Uh, since you brought up Reboa, uh, do you think Reboa has a future role in cardiac arrest resuscitation from the standpoint that it would improve the quality of uh, chest compression. Potentially, and that's, although mast pants were supposed to do that same thing, and we know those didn't really have any benefit either, but that's probably inherent on the mast pants. But Reboa with early access, with uh, good technique, because uh, it's not necessarily a simple procedure to do, 
I think there's potential that Reboa in a standard cardiac arrest may have benefit to really get that blood circulating just to the, the heart and the brain and the lungs, um, maybe. Talking to somebody that uh, has a future dream in about 30 years that we're going to have a self-seating automated Reboa device for, <laughs> for field usage. There are some like abdominal clamping devices, essentially, that put a lot of pressure on the abdomen that those uh, might do it. Uh, one of them even is supposed to put uh, uh, aortic pressure externally, although that works be much better with uh, young, athletic, fit, thin military guys that have lower extremity injuries than uh, our uh, Missouri medium uh, patient. All right, so let's back out of uh, the clinical pieces and discuss uh, the logistics of working a cardiac arrest in the field. Uh, we have some pretty extreme criteria to withhold resuscitative efforts. Uh, what I mean by that is our rigor, lividity, and central cooling, the best criteria to assess viability. I think those are the best criteria that we have available. Um, certainly knowing the story is helpful. How long has the downtime been? Um, knowing what activities happened before, but we don't always have access to that information. Um, I think in these patients, usually it's pretty clear once you start resuscitation that they're non-viable if you're in the unsure category. So if you're like, I'm not sure if they're livid or I'm not sure if this is really rigor mortis or not, you start uh, your therapies, nothing happens, they say, and they systole the whole time. I think it comes pretty clear pretty quick. Um, but I think in some of our patients that you don't know, you need to start resuscitation and figure it out because some of them will surprise you. Now, how about allowing the presence of family during resuscitation, uh, as ACLS would advocate, while we're out in the field? Uh, I'm a huge advocate of leaving the right message with family. Uh, it's meant a lot to me in my personal life, uh, and I hope that I leave the same message with families that I engage. Um, but do they want to watch us resuscitating their family member in their home? So that is also a maybe, and it really depends on the family. So I think it's not inappropriate to ask, do you want to be here? Or if they're already there, you know, they may self-select to either leave or stay in the room and watch. At that point, I think it's um, beneficial for one of the uh, care members, whether it's the paramedic, if there's a couple of paramedics, or you're kind of down the road a little bit, an EMT who knows what's going on. Law enforcement sometimes does a very good job of this as well as talking through the what's occurring, what's going on, getting a little bit of that background information. But I think it's really beneficial for people to see what's occurring. Um, so, you know, people can try to remember that, you know, they did everything. My family member um, got good care. That might help them through the process rather than being remote from it. And that's what we find in the, the ER. Um, the safety factor in a house, uh, since the, uh, they have availability of everything, um, you know, knives, guns, grenades, whatever it is uh, that they have in the house, you need, I think it is important if the person's in the room that somebody is there with them to kind of keep an eye on what's going on. It's very easy for everybody in the medical side to get task saturated with the patient. Yeah, that's probably going to happen. You're not going to be able to keep your eyes on a swivel uh, for seeing safety very easily. That's why having a firefighter, first responder who's not actively engaged or uh, law enforcement, just try to keep an eye on the family. Uh, so pit crew CPR has been demonstrated nationwide to achieve high quality CPR. Uh, in Boone County, we are frequently resuscitating in ad hoc teams. How do we overcome this to provide quality pit crew CPR? So the, my belief on why pit crew CPR works is people focus on the fundamentals and train on the fundamentals. So to me, as long as you're keeping an eye on the fundamentals, it doesn't matter the exact mechanism of how you're doing that. Um, so that's good compressions, rate, depth, 
switching out rescuers when they get fatigued, uh, doing that first, getting the AED applied early, getting defibrillation early, getting good airway uh, oxygenation ventilation. That's what pit crew CPR really does a very good job at with those directed tasks of who does what and when. I think with an ad hoc crew, it takes just the knowledge of what needs to happen or very, very good team leadership uh, in order to make that happen in a directed, calm, professional manner. Uh, so we've mentioned task saturation of the paramedic a couple times, uh, which is something that uh, I've always been outspoken that we need to be cognizant of. And we've mentioned how we can reduce some of those tasks that we think are important and aren't really. Uh, but what are your thoughts on a high-functioning EMT leading ACLS uh, and the paramedic kind of leading the resuscitation? So while they're doing those skills, they are thinking about the big picture. So that's a similar thing that we do in the ER sometimes. So we have a nurse in a role that's a recorder calling out times, and they're basically just following a flow chart. I think an EMT can certainly do that same thing of following a chart. Okay, at this time we do X, at this time we do Y. Oh, it's been four minutes, it's time for epinephrine. We're relieving that task from the paramedic so the paramedic can do the things that a paramedic can only do. EMTs can't be pushing the drugs, paramedic needs to do that. Um, so I think that is not an unreasonable thing to do at all. It takes an EMT who knows what's going on and can, and can work through that um, and have that understanding. But I think that's certainly a viable thing that can be done, you know, kind of in a recorder um, um, uh, flow chart uh, kind of way. Cool. Um, when I was compiling our cardiac arrest database here, uh, which was never completed, sorry, I was very interested in the time that it took between patient contact and first drug push. Is this something that we should be thinking about at all? We're going to go with a maybe. So there's conflicting data on how beneficial is early epinephrine. So does it really help our patients early or not? I think probably, but we don't know that for sure. Certainly if, uh, you know, if you get ROSC from the first shock, no, it's not going to be beneficial. Anybody else? Yeah, it's going to be beneficial. Who's going to get ROS from that first shock? I have no idea. So if we have patients that don't get ROS from that first shock, yeah, go ahead and giving that epinephrine pretty early on that next cycle is helpful. Starting compressions, giving the shock, and then if that shock is unsuccessful, getting your access and drug delivery right away. All right. Let's say we don't achieve ROSC. What things should we still be considering for transport? So the patients that we may still need to transport, even if we don't get ROSC, the ones that I still have a hard time with, persistent VTAC, VFib, with a good uh, and tidal CO2. We don't have good data on how those are going to do, but those are the patients where they, it may be beneficial, especially if the um, witness to rest uh, and chest compressions right away. Those patients are one of the very few categories where it may be helpful to transport for things like ECMO, potentially, or thrombolytics in the ER, or something else that we don't know about yet. Um, or um, other medications that may or may not be beneficial in the future too. Um, so that's the category of patients that's still tough, uh, even in the ER to call uh, a time of death when you know maybe one more thing that we could do would be beneficial. Those are usually the ones I'm throwing the kitchen sink at to see if anything sticks. Um, but you know they uh, with uh, shock resistant VTAC VFib that's a pretty high mortality rate. So you know, there's nothing that says that they are going to survive either, but those are the ones that are potential. That's a good one to uh, talk about with medical control to know, is this somebody that really should be transported or not? All right, let's say we can't get an airway. I don't want to talk about all the different options we have to get an airway, but let's just say we can't get one. 
is this a patient we should transport when there's really not a chance of, I mean, we're talking about adding 15 minutes to the point at which they will get an airway if they get one in the ER. Is there a point to transporting that patient? Probably not, It, but it also depends on what you've been able to do for an airway in the meantime. If they're getting some ventilation um, and the rest of cardiac arrest care is going well, probably not much of a be benefit. Um, if they've had no ventilation, the 15 more minutes of non-ventilation is not going to be beneficial for the patient. Um, but if you've been able to get some, and you know, especially in that patient that you had ROSC and then you lost it again with some airway, and you think if you can get the airway back, you can get ROSC, that might be a patient that you're going to go uh, pretty quickly after that second uh, episode of cardiac arrest. How about kids? Are you transporting kids that have not regained a pulse? I'm treating kids exactly the same way as I'm treating adults. Um, so if airway acts, uh, oxygenation, ventilation are good, compressions are good, defibrillation is good, medication delivery is good, that's going to be the, uh, the highest chance that we can get for that kid initially is good on-scene care. That's what we have to do first. But after that, we're still looking for reasons that maybe uh, transport and some higher level of care would be beneficial. But if there's not, th that patient's not going to have any more beneficial outcome for us transporting than not. Now this hits on the case review you sent out, but we'll load it in here since it fits. Should we transport lights and sirens? So there are some services that are transitioning to no lights and sirens for transport of the cardiac arrest patient. Um, I'm not sure that I want to jump to that yet. I still think in cardiac arrest, we, we need to make an efficient movement to the hospital. Lights and sirens are going to help that a little bit, but we still need to do all of the things that we should be doing anyway in the back of the ambulance. Uh, people should be secured. Patients should be secured. Equipment should be secured. We should be driving with a safe, uh, in a safe manner with due regard. And we should minimize any procedures that need to be done. Certainly, mechanical uh, compression devices are almost a necessity if we're transporting a patient with cardiac, uh, with compressions going. Um, so um, you should already have your access done. Your airway probably is going to be a supraglottic or ET tube at that point, just so you can have good uh, ventilation oxygenation without having to manually hold mass seal on a moving ambulance, which probably isn't going to work very well. So in those patients uh, that we're transporting, I think lights and sirens, but it, it must be done in a safe manner really has to be done very, very calmly uh, because of the number of people in the back of the ambulance and the risk at that point. I remember my very first cardiac arrest patient I ever had, I was standing over the top of the patient during the transport doing chest compressions. Um, but I do remember uh, the paramedic that was driving was doing a very, very good job driving. It was kind of a, um, a last resort kind of transport in that service at that time. But um, the paramedic, I remember going very slowly through intersections, braking gently, accelerating gently. And I remember thinking in the back of the ambulance, go faster, go faster. But, but uh, that paramedic had a very good knowledge that uh, it wasn't going to really change the outcome that much. And the most important job at that point was to, to be safe. I've had precisely the opposite experience in transport of being thrown numerous occasions. I've had many of those as well, but the first time was, was pretty good. Broke in easy. Uh, so let's go to the perfect ACLS uh, scenario when we achieve ROSC. What methods should we be using to detect ROSC? So I think this is a wonderful time for end tidal CO2 use. So if you have the, the nasal cannula spoon, that's okay, but inline at that point um, is really, really good. Uh, with ROSC, you're going to see a jump in the end tidal CO2. Um, with good compressions, you're probably a little bit above 10. As soon as you get ROSC, it's going to jump to 40 or so. 
I think at that point, it's okay to stop compressions, even if it hasn't been the full two-minute cycle. Feel for a pulse. You're probably going to have one if you have an end title that's jumped. Um, that's probably the best method for determining. Certainly, if we're doing pre-hospital art lines in the future, that's going to be pretty beneficial as well. Honestly, I run most of my codes with my hand on the femoral artery. So I know how good compressions are occurring. Um, and then when we do pulse checks, I know right where I should be feeling. So I can feel for a pulse right away. So I'm not moving my hand around. Uh, again, the, in a limited environment, pre-hospital, uh, paramedic uh, may or may not be able to do that. But if you have an extra EMT that can just keep their hand on the pulse, sometimes I have somebody else, a nurse or a tech uh, or a resident or a med student, uh, just keeping a hand on a pulse just so I know. Recommend against carotid pulse checks uh, 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 persistently. Uh, we want good blood flow to the brain for cardiac or for uh, brain survival, but for more artery, that's fine. Uh, what about ultrasound? So ultrasound for detection of cardiac arrest has not been shown to actually be beneficial yet. Uh, there's a, a more significant time of uh, compression delay uh, when ultrasound is used. A paper just came out a couple weeks ago, showed 11 second average pulse check without ultrasound, 17 seconds with ultrasound. So that's delaying our compression fraction and that's not beneficial for outcomes. Um, so uh, in the unknowns or to declare death, I think ultrasound's okay, but on a standard pulse check, I'm not using ultrasound. Should we stay on scene for any amount of time after achieving ROSC? Like, do you have a, a timer that tells you that you're okay to, to transport? So I think after you get ROSC, you have the most unstable patient you're going to have in an ambulance at that point. Um, so I think that's a point where I'm moving sooner rather than later at that. So get a primary survey, make sure I have access. Uh, if I need to secure the airway, I'm doing that. Um, but at that point, my uh, transport before the next episode of cardiac arrest is, is beneficial. But at the same time, we need to do it in a safe manner. Everybody needs to be secured. I think that's also a good time to put on the mechanical compression device so it's in place for your transport, ready to go. If the patient arrests and transport, you're not scrambling. You're just turning the device on and you're going to uh, go to town. Um, the, I think 12 lead is also an important thing to consider at that point, because that can be something that maybe this patient needs to go straight to the cath lab. If it really was a, um, coronary artery occlusion that led to their arrest, cath lab is going to be the beneficial. So this is a decent time to call STEMI alert on these patients too, if they're having a STEMI. So getting that done in the ambulance is fine. Um, I wouldn't necessarily delay scene time to do that though, but once you have access, you have airway, I'd probably get moving, um, quickly. Let's say you show STEMI. They rearrest in transport. Mm -hmm. You fire up your automated CPR device. Are you going straight to the cath lab with that patient? That depends on the system. So some systems will still work that patient in the ER. Some systems will take that patient to the cath lab with the compression device going. That depends if the cath lab's ready and, and how the system operates. I think the best patient outcome is if they go straight to the cath lab at that point or minimum time as possible in the ER. So aeromedical transport is a super contentious topic. We're talking about this ultra unstable patient that we've got, and we think of aeromedical as uh, fast and at a, a critical care level. Um, their environment really isn't CPR friendly though. So as you've said before, that ROSC patient is uh, super unstable. How long before they're safe to fly, or do you fly them anyway? I don't think there's a number that you can use. People will go back into cardiac arrest uh, dependent on the cause. So it's a very similar decision just to transport initially um, by ground. It depends on your scene. Uh, if you're further away from your scene, from your uh, tertiary care center or cath lab capable hospital, I think flight is probably going to have better outcomes for that patient than ground because um, you're going to be getting them faster to the cath lab. 
uh, for the STEMI patients or faster to a higher level of care, whatever the reason. Um, but if it's a patient that routinely arrests, may, they may not be survivable. But if, there's, if it's somebody that uh, goes back into a, a rhythm and stays there for a while, I don't think there's a timer that I have before I would fly the patient. But I would use the same caveat for ground transport. It, I will want a compression device on the patient for that transport. And then, the, and then it doesn't matter. Oh, you're in flight. Oh, they arrested. Click. It's on. Because doing compressions in the back of the helicopter is really unfun. That was my next question is, uh, would that be a requirement if you're going to fly that ROSC patient to have an automated CPR device available to you? I think if it's a ROSC patient that's relatively stable, no. But I think it's a best level of care, best practice uh, to have a, a mechanical CPR device on that post-ROSC patient. Not all of them will code again. Um, some of them will, some of them won't. Um, it's not always uh, easy to tell who will and who won't. I've certainly flown plenty of post-arrest patients that are pretty stable on a few drips, um, and they do fine. All right, with that, I think we have reached the end of this marathon initial podcast about cardiac arrest management. Uh, Dr. Stilley, it's been an absolute pleasure for me to pick your brain on these issues. I love it, Tony. Thank you for having me. Do you have any final thoughts uh, to wrap the show? I think the, the thing is just focus on the fundamentals like we've been talking about. Um, make sure that you're doing compressions, early uh, defibrillation, and then adequate oxygenation ventilation. Um, and then stay safe. Uh, so making sure that if we are transporting, we're doing it in a very safe manner. Uh, um, but not rushing to the ambulance. Uh, we know that good compressions, early defibrillation, early access with medication delivery is going to be the best thing for our patient, and those are done suboptimally in a moving ambulance. So getting those established first before movement or any sort of rapid movement is, is certainly best thing for our patients. So you can catch all the show notes for this episode at cbcemp.proboards.com. Uh, post some feedback as well as a big thank you to Dr. Stilly while you're there. And I am sure we can get a discussion fired up. I can ensure that all of those questions will hit his desk or his inbox. You can subscribe to The Medical Director is Always Right by searching for CBC EMP on any podcast player, including iTunes and SoundCloud. This was Tony Held and Dr. Josh Stilly with The Medical Director is Always Right for Columbia and Boone County Emergency Medical Professionals. We'll catch you again soon.